Acho que conseguimos, rapaz, você tá aí? Tô. Ok, vamos começar. Oi, hey there, welcome back to my podcast. I am Camilla, your high vibe advocate. Give me 15 minutes and I will give you a high vibe world. Well, today's topic may not seem high vibe, but knowledge is power and that is high vibe. In these scary times, um, understanding what's happening is important. And since coronavirus, uh, since the coronavirus outbreak began um, and a p- pandemic was declared, the U.S. has been blessed with the presence of a very, very special health expert, Dr. Fauci. But I have had the blessing of growing up with my own personal Dr. Fauci, my dad, Andre Medici. My father is a health economist who has dedicated his life to studying and implementing healthcare systems in developing countries. His wisdom has saved countries money and billions of lives. For the last 20 plus years, my father has worked at international organizations, first in the Inter-American Development Bank and then at the World Bank, traveling at times to remote, high-risk, hardly accessible areas to bring health care to people in need. His level of expertise is beyond words, and if I were to list all of his accolades, it would take several episodes just to do that. So I will let you Google him to see his full list of credentials. But for now, it is my pleasure, honor, and privilege to introduce you all to my father, Andre Medici. Thank you for being with us here, Daddy. Hi, Camila. Thanks for Hello. having me. And it is a pleasure to participate in, in the wonderful podcast of my lovely daughter. <laughs> well, what is wait for Wednesday nights to have the chance to listen your wise and sweet thoughts in this podcast every week? Oh, thank you, Daddy. Um, so we are facing the first and greatest pandemic of the century. And for most of us, the first and only one of our entire life. Um, And this is on a global scale. It's not just here. And it appears that we weren't ready. We didn't have enough ventilators, personal protective equipment, or healthcare professionals to serve the growing number of cases. Could we have been prepared for this? Well, the level of preparedness for a pandemic is partially, but not totally, predictable. Many of the preparedness for a general, not this specific pandemic, was described in the international health regulations prepared by the World Health Organization in the last decade and agreed among all countries. However, according an evaluation done by John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Health, and the Economist Intelligence Unit on November 2019, no country was 100% prepared to face a pandemic emergency. Mm-hmm. In the case of this specific pandemic, the number of ventilators, personal protective equipment, and health professionals necessary to face a high number of cases depends on how the country took preventive measures to flatten the epidemic curve. If countries did not perform 
a high number of tests among the vulnerable, high-risk population uh, weeks before the epidemic peak and did not create a previous lockdown of the population at a higher risk, there is a huge risk that the number of medical staff, equipment and supplies will not be enough to face the epidemics. This is what's happening now in Italy, Spain, France, and we hope that it did not happen also in the United States, which went to protective measures a bit later than was technically expected. Yeah, some countries, though, seem to have been able to contain the spread relatively quickly, like China and Singapore and South Korea. But other countries, like you mentioned, Italy uh, and apparently the U.S. and Brazil and Mexico aren't faring as well. So why do you think that is? Well, I don't think that China contained the spread in the beginning. There were many complaints that despite infectiology doctors and other medical staff timely alerting for the risk of the pandemic since November last year, the first measures to contain the spread in Wuhan, the first epicenter of the pandemics, were done only in January when the COVID-19 epidemics started to spread faster. However, China was very fast and efficient in measures such as the massive testing of the population, the lockdown of all the uh, Wuhan area in the fast creation of ICU beds, uh, mobilization of human resources, production of equipment as ventilators, etc. The response was late, but very good and very effective in reducing the number of cases. Another contributing factor to that effectiveness is the culture of obedience of the Chinese population, which is very difficult to find in many Western societies. In the case of Italy, the Lombardy government did not have a good and fast response. The government was much more worried about the economic effects of an eventual lockdown and gave contradictory messages to the population, which was very confused. A contributing factor was also the high proportion of elderly in Italy with comorbidities, such as diabetes, high blood pressure, and cardiovascular disease, which are victims of the fast increase of infection among the unprotected population. However, good examples were South Korea and Singapore, where populations have also the civil obedience culture and the government did protective measures such as massive tests and track back systems to identify populations at risk and locking down that specific population, flattering the epidemic curve before the peak. Well, we adopted the social distancing approach and temporary shutting down of many parts of the economy in order to try to contain the virus. But it appears that now some leaders, such as Donald Trump and Bolsonaro in Brazil, I'm just talking about it in a global scale, they're getting anxious to alleviate some of these measures and to reopen commerce as if nothing was happening. And, you know, they keep saying things, uh, you know, that people will inevitably die but that's life, and even using analogies like we cannot stop a car factory just because of auto accidents. Are they wrong? And if so, why? Well, I don't think that if leaders do not follow strict social isolation measures, uh, they, were, uh, they are wrong, because in both countries, such as Brazil, United States, the social isolation or lockdown of the entire population at risk is the best measure, not only to save lives. This is the primary 
uh, primordial objective of any government, but also to recover the economic trends in the future. Let's follow the forecasting of McKinsey, an important consultant firm. In the case of the United States, if the country implements strict measures of lockdown in the next couple of months, now I guess that one third of American population is in social isolation, the American GDP will fall 8% from January to June 2020, but it will uh, reduce only 2.4% in the whole uh, 2020 year, with at least 6% less deaths and perspectives of a fast recovery in 2021. However, if the council does not adopt this total lockdown, uh, then the GDP will fall 3.9% in the first semester of 2020 and 2.7% in the whole 2020 year, with the perspective of a second wave of cases in 2021 and no economic growth. So the social isolation is the best solution, not only to save lives, but also because it could recover the economy faster. Very interesting. Um, I think these numbers are very, very interesting. I think a lot of people are very scared of the economic impact, but there's a much greater economic impact if a lot of people die, obviously. Um, and But still, there will be inevitably uh, a tremendous impact on every country's economy because of the coronavirus uh, and the lockdown. In the U.S. alone, there have already been over 3 million people filing for unemployment, and that's the largest number ever recorded. Are we on the brink of another Great Depression? Is there anything that we could do to prevent that? Well, I think that it's early to say that uh, we will have a Great Depression like the one of the 1930s. But we will probably have a deep decrease in the economic growth for some months with the perspective of recovering faster or not, depending on how many lives we could save and how society will be healthy for a fast economic recovery. Uh, we always have to say that uh, life, lives are first, the economy is the second. We need to remind that the Spanish flu, uh, United States did not, uh, did not have a negative effect in the economic growth as hard as the, the 1930s Great Depression. But to date, we could say that the Spanish flu was the fourth most relevant economic crisis of the last century, following the Great Depression of the 30s, the Second World War, and the First World War. In this order, the way to prevent a bigger disaster is just to avoid that many lives could be lost in short term and guarantee an economic environment to the fast recovery of the nations and the world economies. Yeah. I think that's true. I mean, it's it's definitely what it seems like from the numbers. And another thing I, I keep hearing is the term flattening the curve. That's something you mentioned before. That's something Dr. Fauci says every day. That's something that the governor of New York keeps talking about. What does that mean and how do we do that? Uh, flattening the curve means that we need to do everything to avoid a peak of hospitalization needs that could be not supported by the health systems. If you have so many cases requiring hospitalization, we will not have ICU beds, medical staff, and supplies to attend the emergency needs. So it is important to reduce the number of cases for hospitalization, and the best way to do that is to have preventive measures such as social isolation and lockdown. 
Doing that, we are not compromising the capacity of the health systems to attend the neediest cases and save thousands of lives. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the scariest things right now for a lot of people, including Scott and I and everybody that I talk to, is the fear that we are, you know, here in New York, at least, there's the, the, the overcrowding of hospitals and the lack of medical professionals to answer to the call of this pandemic has left us scared of getting hurt generally or getting in a car accident or having a heart attack or a stroke or anything else and needing to go to the hospital. I know that now they sent the U.S. Navy ship here to to tend to those kinds of cases, but it's so scary. Like right now, you really calling 911 is, is, is almost like you're threatening our life. So definitely, <laughs> yeah. it's a good thing to flatten that curve. Um And since this pandemic has started and we were told to social distance, I have personally become a complete narc, too. I even called the town uh, on some teens playing basketball down in the village last week. Um, and I keep seeing, you know, unrelated people talking, you know, on the streets together in big hurdles, taking walks together and stopping to speak to each other. So it gets me very, very mad that people are not taking that social responsibility not only for themselves, but for others. What is the role of personal responsibility and compliance? And what can we each do to protect ourselves and others from spreading the virus so quickly? In my view, our duties as respons responsible persons are stay at home and communicate to others. Every we can do, especially uh, every, everyone that we can do, especially th those at risk, to the same and to proceed uh, with other measures of hygiene, such as washing hands properly, clean surfaces we touch regularly, using protective masks if you are contaminated, and respect the distance of at least six feet from each other when interacting with anyone. Yeah, I just hope a lot of people understand that that's not just for themselves, but it's for other people, because even if you don't get sick, you can transmit that to someone who not only will get sick, but could die. Um, yeah, um, sorry. Yeah. Uh, so some experts have said that at least 50% of the population will contract the virus. That's scary. Is that true? Well, again, it, it depends on how our response will be to adopt the protective measures following the social uh, uh, isolation norms, social distance. Certainly, so, uh, certainly some countries will have more risk than others due to the inaction of the state and the low level of communication with the population at risk. Think about the land areas such as favelas in Brazil uh, that will be uh, very, uh, 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 under very risk. You know? It is very difficult to know how the number of cases will increase because of the world's low capacity to test the population for the, 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 the coronavirus. However, uh, we have almost one um, million cases worldwide. Uh, I think that today, the last number that I saw was uh, about 800,000 and about 50,000 deaths, almost 50,000 deaths. It is unusual for the level of development that the human society conquest Uh, concurrently in the, the, the 21st century. We could expect a better performance of the governments and the population, but who knows what will be the final numbers of these epidemics? It's very difficult to know. Yeah. Um, is there anything that 
could be done to get maybe a vaccine in less than 12 months? Like they're predicting that's the least amount of time that it will take. Well, the, the original expectation is that the vaccine could be available in 12 to 18 months. However, big pharmaceutical companies such as Johnson Johnson and Abbott are announcing that sooner than we expect we could get a vaccine or efficient medications, creating an optimist perspective. Johnson Johnson say that they could ha get a vaccine based on the material collected from the persons that uh, were cured from the, the COVID-19 uh, untested negative. And they think that they can get this vaccine about uh, January next year. However, all trial phase and validations and also production and commercialization perspectives need to be in place. We need to know that the global production and commerce chains have been disrupted with the crisis, and we probably will need special efforts to get this working for the vaccine production and commercialization. But the vaccine is definitely the best way to avoid the sequence of waves of the infection by this virus. Oh, by far. I mean, I'm pretty sure this will get people much more... Uh interested in vaccinations generally because a lot of people don't even like to give vaccines for for things that have been eradicated they don't understand that the reason that things have been eradicated is that everybody continues to be vaccinated uh, that's how important vaccines are um and uh well here in new york we're seeing the greatest number of cases and the highest number of deaths in all of the united states why do you think that is and do you have any advice to policymakers regarding how to help New York change its gloomy reality right now. Yeah, you're right. New York is the new world epicenter of the pandemic. Uh, with close to um, um, or 100,000 cases, um, it is a lot. One difference between the Spanish flu in the, the 100 years ago and the COVID-19 is that the first was globalized by boat and the second by plane. Uh, if the disease really starts in Wuhan, Wuhan the COVID-19, New York is a place where everybody uh, uh, comes from everywhere by planes and the pandemic found New York to be a good host for its spread. Despite the protective measures starting late in New York, especially the fact that the lockdown was done very late, the city and the state had a potent transportation interconnection, and this was a disadvantage in the case of epidemic spread. How to help? Well, it is difficult to know, but maybe the creation of emergency sites for hospitals, ICU beds, like uh, uh, campaign hospitals, like you do in wars, uh, with ventilators and other equipment, and a massive test structure and keeping uh, the lockdown for the people that are not essential to, to, to work and to save lives in the, the epidemics are the best way to face the pandemic in the, the state now. Right. I mean, they're trying all that. I think they're they're definitely taking, like, making strides. And I know that there's allegedly this new uh, fast test that gets the results within 15 minutes. The only thing is trying to make that widespread so more people can be tested. So hopefully, yeah. hopefully yeah. that comes in soon. Definitely. Um, yeah. You and I both feel that we had it back in January before the pandemic even began here in the U.S., but we weren't tested, so we can't be sure. Yeah. Um, and like us, there's an increasing number of people coming forth the same feeling that they had it around the same time, back in January, yeah. some people in December. 
Currently, there's a hospital in New York, Mount Sinai, that is calling all people who believe that they had it and recovered from it to come in for a blood test so that they can have uh, that checked and get, you know, so they can get the antibodies, which could be used to save lives. Um, There is already a shortage of workers, though, so it's likely that they cannot come to us, to our house, to uh, draw the blood. So my question is, is it worth going there into the city? and into the hospital to see if we had it. Um, And is it likely that if we did have it, we are now immune to it? At this moment, I don't think that even uh, with this kind of suspicion, we should to abandon the lockdown to go to any hospital or health services. The recommendation is that if you are not needing emergency health care, the best is to stay at home to avoid risks of contamination. Um, hospitals' pandemic moments are not the best environment to stay if you are not requiring emergency care. Obviously, there are exceptions such as uh, health works, po- police, energy, communication, press, and others who need to keep essential city functions working to avoid the collapse in basic services and supplies. But these workers need to work under strict guidelines to avoid their infection by the disease and be tested regularly to under or under suspicion of any risk to be infected by the virus. Yeah, I, I definitely want to take this moment to once again, and I know I've been doing this a lot, but once again, thank all of the people who are considered essential workers and Obviously, the medical professionals, obviously, NYPD and any police officer of any force out there anywhere in the country. Um, but uh, and, and of course, paramedics, EMTs, everyone who is essential, but also the people who are delivering food to our homes, um, the people that are keeping the water running in, uh, in our in our pipes, you know, the people that are keeping the electricity and the gas going. Uh, these people are really true heroes because. I couldn't imagine. I mean, I haven't left the house in so long other than to go for walks with much more than six feet of distance from anyone else. So I can't imagine being them. And I, I know that they're facing some crazy dichotomies of just coming home and not being able to hug their children and being scared to transmit this to their family members. And it's always yeah. tearing my heart to see that they have that, you know, that ethical obligation for to their profession, but also what about their families? So I think about yeah. that a lot. So I want to thank them for that. It's a very sad situation, this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and you and my mom are both over 60. And you, you in particular, you have some underlying conditions. Yeah. So what are you and mom doing to protect yourselves from exposure? And what advice do you have for those who are also in the vulnerable population category? Should they be taking any extra steps? Like, what should they do? Well, we are both to stay at home, keeping uh, our workout because it's important. Workout is important just to, to get um, resistance and to, to strengthen your immune system. Uh, because good physical form increases uh, uh, resistance. Uh, other question is cleaning everything we can like. Uh, we can like washing hands, uh, uh, changing sh- uh, sheets every day cleaning surfaces, doing special care to everything coming from outside, like post-mail, Amazon packages, in order to make them free of risk of contamination and having a good stockpile of cleaning products like soap, hand sanitizer, Clorox, and other products. We also are respecting internally some social distance. Yeah, 
Yeah, you're, you're staying away from mom inside the house. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, what risks do countries like Brazil, where the president does not believe in the social distancing and in shutting down uh, the economy, what risks do, do those ca- countries pose to the U.S., for example? And what can the U.S. do to protect itself from that impact? At the moment, I, I think that the big risk in Brazil is not to the uh, uh, United States, but, but to the Brazilians. Uh, I think that the president of Brazil has a dubious discourse, sometimes recommending the social distance and sometimes saying that the economy cannot stop. However, the Minister of Health and some state governments are doing the right job and improving the perspective to the population. As you can see, last Sunday, Brazil had about uh, 5,000 cases um, of COVID-19 and uh, with a, a, a lower number of deaths. However, we know that the number could be big because of the lack of tests and the risk of the poor population uh, that don't have sufficient care from the government's authorities. Um, many people in Brazil live in, in slums that are uh, people who have a lot of density of, of uh, population in houses in very small places and with no uh, uh, running water, uh, very bad sanitation. Everything is very complicated in this case. No, I, I agree. And obviously the, the risk to the Brazilians is high. And I guess right now we have closed borders anyway, so it's not like anybody can come in here. I think that, you know, my fear is that in the future, if we're able to contain the virus here, once we start to open our borders again, we're going to have to really consider who we're going to be letting in, because if places did not take the right precautions, they could still be causing a lot of problems. I mean, unless we already have the vaccine and we already vaccinated the entire population by then, but... Um, could be scary. How long do you think uh, this pandemic will last? Well, everything depends on the efficiency of the social distance compliance by the population, the efficacy of the health system in reducing the numbers of fatalities, and how fast a new vaccine or efficient drugs against the, the coronavirus would be available to the majority of the population. The timing for all this process is very difficult to know. Maybe we will have about six months of risk from March to August in counts like United States, but the question is how many waves could happen. Um, if you think about the, the, the Spanish flu, the Spanish flu had three waves at least, and uh, many people die in the, in the second and the third wave too. Yeah? Um, so uh, after the end of social isolation, it's necessary to know how many waves we, we could have. And before we have uh, uh, we have an efficient and massive way to immunize the world population. That could be the, the best scenario about this. Yeah, we're all hoping for that soon. Um, but could we survive such a long time without our economy, you know, with it being partly shut down and all and with so many people unemployed? Well, uh, you see that um, the economic authorities everywhere are creating packages to protect jobs by paying salaries and social benefits to the informal sector during the social isolation, by creating credit to small and medium enterprises, and by avoiding crises uh, in the station sector, such as the, the aviation industry, the, the, the airplane the airplane industry. United States created a package of $2 trillion, uh, and Brazil something about $150 billion to similar measures at this moment that was voted in the Congress uh, today. 
it will have a, a heavy fiscal cost, but will avoid a major crisis and the fast way to poverty, which is the mother of all big crises. I hope that these measures uh, will be enough, but maybe more money and measures will be necessary. Solidarity from big companies and high middle class is also important in these difficult times, keeping salaries and payments to services, even when these services were not known, because many people will not have conditions to live without their in incomes. Yeah, I mean, I did a whole podcast last week about that, that the only way you know, to avoid chaos is through kindness. And I should also add through charity because obviously there's some businesses that just cannot survive without help. And even with the government helping, there's a finite amount of money in the world generally. And um, so we got to think about that. And, you know, if, if people have extra and enough that they can help others, this is the time to do that. You know, it will benefit everybody to do that. Um, and, uh, and some people actually believe that if we had Medicare for all or a single payer healthcare system, like Bernie Sanders had suggested that we would be better off right now. Do you agree with that statement? Well, I, I, I think that it's difficult to say, um, think about the United Kingdom. United Kingdom has a kind of Medicare for all in, in its health systems, the national health system, NHS, that's very, very known in the world, uh, is facing the same or higher problems than the United States to face the coronavirus crisis. It is important to say that a health pandemic emergency requires measures that are totally different from the regular health systems functioning. In the case of the uh, United Kingdom, uh, the fatality rate of the, 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 the COVID-19 number of deaths by registered cases is about 6.3%, and the United States is 1.8%, a lot of times uh, lower, if you think about as March 30. And both counties had the same problem making tests accessible to the population. So I don't think that Medicare for all could be a solution for a pandemic. The, the, the policies to face a pandemic are beyond the way of how the health systems are organized. Yeah, and I mean, and I and I know also that uh, the, the insurance companies right now are waiving all co-payments and all kinds of um, you know premiums uh, or not premiums, but uh, what's it called? Uh, whatever that money now the words are are, are disappearing from my mouth, but um, you know there's like an amount of money that you usually have uh, you have to spend that before they start to to pay. But anyway. They're waving it all right now anyway. So it's it's interesting how everyone had to contribute so that this doesn't become a bigger problem for everybody else. Um, and another thing you keep talking about, because you just mentioned it again, and you've mentioned it a few times during this interview, is testing. Because testing seems to be a key component, and uh, they also seem to be very scarce right now. I mean, we're hoping that this new test comes out that gives results in 15 minutes, but... As, as of right now, that's not happening. Um, so does that also mean that the number of cases is unreliable and therefore the morbidity of the virus may also be um, incorrect? Well, well, in my view, testing is the only way to assure to a person that he or she is infected and needs to be quarantined, uh, getting prompt health care and protecting others. On the other hand, if... Uh, is the right way to track the infected chain of persons that eventually need to be contacted, tested, and quarantined if they are positive. 
If you can have tests in the right timing and a good tracking system with enough anticipation, then we could flatten the pandemic curve without hard lockdown measures and without overcrowding the capacity of the health systems. I am sure that the number of cases is unreliable because the lack of tests is most of countries and regions. Um, in most of country regions, many countries start to test very late, just as Italy and even United States, other in the right time like South Korea, Singapore and Taiwan. In poor countries, for example, many are going to the hospitals with COVID-19 already in critical conditions just to die. That is the reason why the higher fatality rates are happening now in African countries uh, where the number of history cases are very low. In Angola, Gabon, Zimbabwe, the fatality rates by COVID-19 varies from 15 to 30%, with less than 10 cases registered. Nobody wow. knows what is happening in the poor slums of these countries, or even if people who is dying or will die will be tested to assure that the deaths are associated with the coronavirus. The capacity to track back the cases is probably in, in existence. In general, pandemics with rapid capacity to spread are difficult to make the cases surveilled and counted, but the situation is much worse without a good public health system to respond to the pandemic emergencies, and especially if the capacity for testing the population and tracking back the cases are not in place. Well, that's very, very true. Well, Dad, thank you for the incredible work that you do and that you have always done in the benefit of others. I know your time is limited. I had to schedule this way in advance because you're being interviewed by everybody right now. <laughs> um, and you, you, know, you have always taught me that my legacy lies in how many other lives I am able to improve. And I try hard to live by your great example every day. So, and thank you also for taking the time again to enlighten me and my listeners during these dark times and these scary times. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for the opportunity to participate in your podcast. And I'm really honored to be here and especially to have you as my amazing daughter. <laughs> oh, Daddy, thank you. <laughs> well, my pleasure. And <laughs> thank you. And that is all we have for today. Thank you for being with me and for listening to me and for being a part of my journey. I am Camilla, your High Vibe Advocate. Looking forward to your outreach at highvibeadvocate.com. And as always, looking forward to our next meeting right here on my channel. See you next Wednesday.